code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. Welcome to the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, a daily podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and plunder the Pirates of the Caribbean films, one blimey minute at a time. I'm Scott Artis. And I'm Heather Artis. I don't want to come off as overly emotional here. Yes, you do. Maybe, but not really. But I, I'm just going to say it. I miss Josh and me Gibbs. Is oh, this, me too. <laughs> is this wrong? I know their feelings are not right or wrong deal. They are what they are. But breaking down movies by each and every single minute here means that although we're only on minute 11, all the prep work we do, the reviewing of each minute multiple times and all that fun stuff that goes on behind the scenes means we actually haven't seen Gibbs for over a week now. Now, I'm not saying I haven't enjoyed the recent pirate introduction that we have in the full 60 seconds in the last minute of just a pirate in the scene, but Gibbs' colorful language and dialect are surely missed, at least for me. Oh, me too. So, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe we should just have a moment of silence for Gibbs, but (laughs) before I shed a tear, pirates don't cry, you know. Let's not linger on this heartstrings-tugging topic any longer, and let's just get going. In the previous minute, we continued the introduction to our Caribbean pirate and the revelation that he was not sailing an intimidating, cannon-laden ship, but a single mast and sail... What is your issue? Why are you laughing at that? I was just picturing his ship. <laughs> My God. Now i got to start this over again. Everybody, I have to start this over because she started laughing at me, and I couldn't, I couldn't really help, so... Here we go. In the previous minute, we continued the introduction to our Caribbean pirate and the revelation that he was not sailing an intimidating, cannon-laden ship, but a single mast and sail dory that was taking on water and quickly becoming the opposite of seaworthy. After saluting a few skeleton pirates serving as a warning, he begins to make his way towards the dock. In minute 11, we begin as we watch our pirate elegantly step onto the dock from the crow's nest of his boat, which is now completely submerged. It ends as Norrington's extravagant promotion ceremony gets underway, complete with music and military drills, while women, including Elizabeth Swan, are fanning themselves due to the Caribbean heat. So welcome to Port Royal, everyone. So in this minute, we're really getting to see our pirate and his all his mannerisms and the way he um, presents himself, I guess. Yeah, I, I see it that our pirate, you know, especially with him, not only is he like the captain of a dory and a sunken dory at that, but nothing's letting him down. Nothing's no. getting him down. He's he's really regal on top of the crow's nest when he strolls in or submerges in. I don't even know what a ship that's sailing <laughs> underwater is called. It's almost like submarining. So I guess maybe you're sailing, sailing it. But his submarine dory is coming in and he is on top of this thing. And now we know what all the other pirates or actually the ship hands and the crew that were selling goods for the ship, everybody that was on the dock at the harbor there, were looking at. They're looking at our pirate coming in with no ship, but just really riding the <laughs> sails, if you will. Yeah, you see him step off the mass of his little dory there. And he just kind of prepares his step and then steps on the dock. Really kind of... Almost choreographed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, being that it's a movie, I'm sure it was choreographed to some extent. 
probably to most extent. But yeah, I, I know what you're saying that he just it was it's like easily done. He foresaw yeah. how this was going to take place. It's like a chess game. He saw the moves ahead and say, wow, I am really going to make it right to the dock here. And he just elegantly steps off as if it just delivered him. It's like an escalator delivers him right to the top there. So the fact that it underwater, I mean, dictates that he had to stay dry to stand on the crow's nest. But the filmmakers, I think, did a nice job setting a precedent in the earlier minute that he likes to sail from this position, as we saw in minute 9 and 10 when we just got the first glimpse. And that's where we think this is headed. In this particular scene, we say, okay... Yeah, we saw that maybe there's some water in the boat, but now he's sailing on top of the the mast again. And we think, okay, this is just his normal behavior, so we're not expecting anything to arrive. So they kind of set up that laugh or that joke uh, to come into play, that comedic moment, and we weren't expecting it. Yeah. So when he steps off his boat and he's walking on that dock, he's doing more of a sashing rather than a swagger. So he's kind of, you're getting kind of getting the feel of the way he acts and the way he is. Yeah, I think this is where we have our, say, third introduction to this pirate here, our yet-to-be-named pirate again. And even supposedly the third time is the charm. As I just mentioned, we still do not have a name for him yet. Right. So we still haven't had that introduction. And I think that's kind of different for some movies is we don't really have that introduction of who he is. And they've done that a number of times through the film but I, already. But I think this is setting that same thing up. Right. And so, yeah, so we've had an introduction of him in minute nine. And then we had one in ten. And now we have a third one with him in this particular scene not only does he reveal himself at the port or the harbor there and the dock to all these other guys but to the harbor master i think that's what he is as a harbor master yeah i think so probably should have looked that up but went for that and <laughs> what was interesting is the special effects in the scene and i'm not even sure that i wrap my mind around how this works yet and i probably should have maybe done some looking into it but apparently his boat wasn't actually moving. It wasn't sailing underwater. It wasn't submerged. It wasn't on some kind of rigging or anything like that. And this mm -hmm. is some behind the scenes talk here. We're not talking actually in the movie or what was supposed to be in the movie. But apparently the staff or the production crew raised it and the special effects crew raised and lowered the level of the water simultaneously pushing the dock towards John, or Johnny Depp on the boat to achieve the effect. And so it's some movie magic in action. Yeah, so it must have been done in like a pool or something along those lines. I guess. Something seems, they could get, they can adjust the water. It seems so seamless though, unless they yeah. had some kind of thing that would hold the water out in this harbor, in this bay here. But it really does seem seamless that he is actually in this bay. So I can't see that there's any green screen action or anything like that that's taking place. So maybe there is, but I thought it was pretty interesting that they actually were raising and lowering water and then moving the dock to get that effect. I thought because you don't you don't know you don't even think that at all. No, I, yeah. I don't notice it at all for sure. Yeah. And we what we find is then when he's there that the harbor master you know comes to say like what are you doing? You can't just walk away. And it's not that we're thinking, hey, he's going to say, you can't just leave a sunken boat at the dock. And, and No, he's like, you can't tie up at the dock. <laughs> and it's a shilling to tie up at the dock. And we need to record your name. And he's, he's thinking, okay, as part of his character, hey, that's kind of weird that you didn't talk to me that the ship is yeah. sunk they both kind of give sunk. the boat a look like yeah. is it really tied up here <laughs> is it even a boat <laughs> yeah that's what he should have said yeah he should have said this isn't a boat it's just it's, i just have a sail here well my thought was he should have told him i didn't tie it up <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's not tied up 
Yeah, that, <laughs> it's that's... just on the ground. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if there's a parking. Maybe there's a parking, you know, fee. It's not tying up at the dock, but you're parking. But yeah. he does offer uh, the harbor master, which kind of again brings you some insight into the character yes. of this pirate. Is that he offers three shillings for basically no questions asked and no name. Yeah, and... you get kind of a sneaky and uh, bribing manner here. Yeah, so we call they call him Mr. Smith, I believe. Is Mr. His... Smith. Okay, Mr. Smith. Smith. Thank you. Exactly. So I thought, wow, it's unheard of. I mean, could anybody out there imagine that you could bribe government officials and they would just leave it alone. I know it's unfathomable to everybody, you know, across. Yes. And this is something that resonates probably across all countries is, that, you know, this bribery system. That doesn't but work. I thought, wow, if he subtracts the one shilling fee that he has to give back to the government for the tying up at the supposedly, or finger quotes, tying up at the dock here. And then basically the harbor master is left with a two shilling bribe. And so I thought, wow, what is two shillings? That, you know, I didn't even have a clue as to what that right. equates to, two shillings. So in the mid-1700s, I was thinking, what were two shillings worth? And apparently, it's not actually that bad of a bribe uh, for the day. As two shillings was basically equivalent to the day's pay or to a day's pay for oh, somebody. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was a pretty decent yeah. score for the harbor master here. Think- and I'm sure that maybe he is maybe more well-paid than some of the others. Yeah, you know, kind of common people. So I looked into that and the daily pay for a British soldier, I mean, it differed with respect to their position, obviously, mm-hmm. within the army or the, or the unit. And for example, though, a sergeant could expect to be paid between one shilling and six pence and two shillings and six pence, depending on whether he served with a foot regiment or the dragoons, respectively. And I'm not even sure what dragoons are. Not dragons. I mean, this isn't a Game of Thrones here. But I guess I probably should have looked at it before I wrote it down and I had to do that. So you would not because dragons, I want to know what dragoons, dragoons are. Dragoons. Maybe dragoons. Somebody out there will probably correct us on that. But yes, you're in the right spot. This is Pirates of the Caribbean Minute and I'm not mispronouncing <laughs> dragons. Uh, so anyways, in comparison, and maybe something that uh, people can get an idea about uh, is that a soldier, or in comparison to a soldier, a laborer, somebody like a carpenter or something like that in the mid-18th century would have earned a daily wage of about two shillings. So basically he was getting, you know, maybe a day's pay for somebody. Right. And then a loaf of bread usually cost around five pence. So that could how many How many pence are in a shilling? I think it's 12. Okay. And then there's maybe... I thought I was going to get you a Then there's, I think there's 20 shillings to a pound. Or am I reversing that? It could be reversed. But I think it's 12 12 shillings or 12 pence per shilling and 20 shillings per pound. If that's out there. So as we move into our next monetary topic of shillings and pounds (laughs) and pences of the 1700s, let's look at the doll. No, okay. Anyways, so... But I think the important part is that we're talking about the money and it's not about the, the little historical tidbits or dragons, dragoons, or whatever we want to say. Is that we were talking yesterday about our pirate here, and he has this kind of happy-go-lucky attitude, as we can see that he's not really bothered by his boat was filling up with water, and today we see that he is sailing in all proud and on top of his boat, mm-hmm. and then he realized, okay, now I got to bribe. He's without a boat. Now we have to bribe and spend his money to just so there's no questions asked. So we already know something is fishy with him that he doesn't want to give his name. You know, there's a little shadiness yeah. going on. And I mean, I guess that would be expected with pirate. pirates. <laughs> or maybe just because he's Johnny Depp and he's tired of people always harassing the him. The paparazzi. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. The paparazzi. And yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. So he finds 
this coin purse is he's going that's on the Harbor Master's makeshift podium, podium mm-hmm. you know, workstation that he has out on the dock. And so he he does he does it. He takes this little coin purse and he shakes it and it's probably made more money on this deal from the sound of what's in the, the coin purse. Yeah. And so I think it backs up his ability for things to turn out for him no matter the circumstance. That's what I'm thinking of. It acts like it's just a matter of fact. And he just walks up to it. It's not even like, he kind of just does a quick like look like, oh, there's a coin purse just sitting here. These people are true trusting. So his loose morals easily made him do it. So we see that he's willing to do that. He doesn't want to give his name. And I just pick it up and shake it and walks about like that. And and the fact that he does it with such confidence, everybody just is walking, you know, doesn't even blink an eye because Uh he's. He's doing it, and it's not like he's looking shady at it. Yeah. And it reminds me, you were talking about paparazzi. I was doing some work in Southern California, and we were out there with Michael Gross. Oh, the yeah. The actor from Family yeah. Ties, from Tremors and stuff like that. Mm, Tremors Minute. That would be, probably be pretty good. So anybody <laughs> out there that's willing to tackle Tremors Minute, that's a really would be a really fun movie on that. Anyways, we were out doing some conservation work, and Michael Gross was there, the actor, and we were taking some photos of the area and doing some stuff. It was really funny because he he turned around when we were having lunch out in the middle of Tahone, Tahone Ranch in this huge expanse of open space and wildlife protection. And he turns around and he says, what are you doing? No paparazzi, no paparazzi. And we're out in the middle of nowhere just because we were taking some photos of the area. And it was pretty funny. And that's all I have about that story. It really didn't go anywhere. So I want to go back to the Harbor Master and you see this little boy behind him, this cute little boy. Well, you don't like Michael Gross? I do. Okay, go for it. So this cute little boy, and he's, you know, watching this deal go down between the Harbor Master and and, um, Johnny Depp here. And then he gets this look like, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) So I take it the little boy is not going to go sharing to anybody what happened. (laughs) Yeah, and, and actually, I think they're training him already to become the next, you know, government employee that's that's willing to take bribes. So this is now <laughs> yeah. now we know how it starts. <laughs> not all government employees are doing that, but there are a select few, and we know that that's how it starts now. As you see it when you're a little tiny boy on the dock, that somebody can slip somebody a day's pay, and something goes through. It just greases the wheels a bit, and <laughs> there's nothing wrong with greasing the wheels if it works in your favor. How about that? So does a harbor master share any of it with the little boy? I'm going to say no. <laughs> and I don't even know what his his job is. The little boy? Yeah. Maybe just to... Is he um, like an, a, a tiny apprentice? Maybe he's more like a runner. You no, know, that's if a he good needs idea. Any, a, a needs something. That makes sense. The guy goes, go get me some water. Go get me some grog. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Didn't take long for loose morals to come up again, did it? No. <laughs> yeah, and Johnny Depp was talking about it. I was watching an interview... And apparently they got a lot of local actors that, and, and this little boy was one of them, along with, I think, with the harbor master, this person that was portraying the harbor master or whatever position he is. And they said they were just a lot of local actors that were really superb, really into their roles. And then he was jokingly saying how, yeah, he thought that they even stopped uh, bathing after a while just to really get into the pirate <laughs> world. Uh, I, I can't verify that. And he was joking. But... Didn't he say they're starting to smell like pirates? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting that they really did bring in a lot of local talent from the Caribbean islands and stuff that made, helped really make this movie and come together. Because those guys were, they really do look the part. They right. really bring a lot of ambiance. To the to the scene, right? Because it it really shows in, in inner workings or what was really happening out there. Yeah. So one other kind of tidbit, and I was really 
really excited to see it is that there was we get a flash of the Port Royal Bill of Entry. And I think it's interesting mm-hmm. to see that there's quite a number of ship names listed on this. Yes. And so, of course, we had to pause and take a peek at that registry. And no surprise here, but I was curious that there's any significance to the ship names on this list. And I found that the majority of them are actually HMS vessels. And HMS stands for Her Majesty's Ship. So most were launched or were active in the mid to late 18th century. And one, the oh. HMS Fortune was first used by the British Royal Navy in 1512. Wow. There have actually been, as far as the HMS Fortune, there have been over 22 HMS vessels over the last 500 years that have had the name Fortune on it. Oh, wow. So the first, as I mentioned, was in 1512, and the last was a naval destroyer launched in 1934. A couple of other notable names on the list, and mind you, I didn't do a real deep dive on this because I didn't have, A, the time to research all these ships, but I did a kind of real quick look to see what I could find if there's anything that stood out. There was a Fancy. So Fancy was listed on this registry or this port, this entry, this bill of entry, and Fancy was initially a 46-gun privateer named Charles II after Charles II of Spain, and it was in Spanish service. And it was commanded by Captain Gibson. And then on May 7th, or May 7th, 1694, Henry Every and a few other conspirators organized and carried out successful mutiny and set Captain Gibson ashore. So they left for the Cape of Good Hope, and at this time the ship was renamed Fancy. So it does have a pirate tie for this particular ship on this list. And then the Fancy, it actually has an interesting story because the Fancy became one of the fastest ships active in the Indian Ocean. And Every, as we mentioned, Henry Every, used this speed to attack and take a French pirate ship, looting the vessel and recruiting approximately 40 of the crew to his own ship. So that left him with a total complement of 150 crew members eventually for the Fancy. Oh, wow. And Every continued, and Henry Every continued to be active, or we should say pirate or captain now, because that's probably what he was, to be active in the Indian Ocean, where he worked alongside other famous pirates of this time, including Thomas II. The other ship I wanted to mention is the Hermosa, and it was sailing from Richmond, Virginia to New Orleans with a cargo of slaves. And this is the top one on that bill of entry that we see. So it was taking this cargo of slaves when it was wrecked uh, in the Abacos. Because Britain had abolished slavery in 1833, the local government forcibly removed the slaves or the slaves from the ship and freed them when they hit Nassau. Huh. Wow. So in the Bahamas. So the freeing of the Hermosa slaves was widely discussed in the United States at the time. And so the next year, slaves on the Creole, the ship the Creole, rebelled against the ship's crew and chose to go to the Bahamas because they had heard about the Hermosa. That's how what it was talked about. So they thought, hey, I know what we can do. We can take over the ship and go to the Bahamas and then we'll be free. So the cases of both these ships actually ended up going to, it's not only discussed in Congress and in Washington, D.C., but it became a big legal battle and it led to one calling for war against Britain if compensation was not made for these slave ships or for the slaves of this cargo that they oh, call wow. these people. Yeah. So after a legal claim, the ship's insurance were eventually awarded $16,000 in compensation in 1855. Huh. So I thought that was an interesting take and that that's number one on that list. Yeah. I don't know if there's another Hermosa that they're talking about, but I didn't find one that was an HMS Hermosa. So that didn't seem to exist. But this Hermosa really did set a precedent and a legal battle in the United States and potentially was trying to spark some war between 
the U.S. and Britain because they were going to free these slaves. They they got to the Bahamas and they're saying there's no slaves here, so you're free. And it really sparked this battle. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That's very interesting. So it could be a statement of, that they're in the Caribbean here and we're going to, you know, and this is English, so we're going to have this go as something that is kind of an anti-slavery message or a... a a hua to to slave the Indian slavery and that whole process and, right. and to those people. So I thought that was really an interesting kind of tidbit that that popped out. Yeah, it was. And so for our setting here, we're at Port Royal, as we mentioned, and Port Royal, at least in the Pirates of the Caribbean universe that we're in right now, is a major city and it's a bustling harbor in Jamaica. It was founded by the English and became a center of uh, the Caribbean trade, actually. And the scenes here that we see were primarily filmed in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, actually. Uh, and in reality, Port Royal was destroyed by an earthquake in 1692. And then they started to do some rebuilding, started to try and bring the city back. But that was stymied in 1704 by another earthquake. So it never regained that prominence it had. And, you know, it really kind of just fell away. And then I think Kingston Bay and or Kingston Harbor and some other things in Jamaica then kind of took over. So Port Royal never saw the heyday that it did in, say, the 1600s. Uh, but there are some liberties that are taken for the movie to go forward because at the time, you know, it, it's kind of like the movement, as we had said, kind of they move and have a loose timeline of some mm-hmm. things. And they're not yeah. trying to be historically accurate, but they do bring in things. I, I wouldn't say that there's any movie error or anything. They're just kind of shifting how things actually were. Right. Along that timeline, because it was actually a major, major setting uh, in the Caribbean and trade for the English. And huh. then we also see on the the hill there, or the bluff, which is Fort Charles. And so Port Royal was actually built around Fort Char- Charles, at least in the movies. Very interesting. Exactly. So do you have anything on that? I do have um, information on the Fort Charles. Yeah, let's jump into Fort Charles. So this is where Norrington Ceremony was, and it's actually sitting up on a bluff. So this uh, Fort Charles was actually on the Palos Verdes Marine Land site, and where there's an endless 180-degree view of the Pacific Ocean. Nice. Yeah. So it includes, it includes stone walls, parapets, a bell tower, officers' quarters, prison cell blocks, a central courtyard with gallows. So it's it's quite large. Huh, yeah. You can't have a fort without gallows. <laughs> so it's quite large. The fort was prefab in a North Hollywood mill. Wow. So they did all the work in this mill and then trucked it out to Marine Land. And um, the the walls were framed with plywood and they had over 1,300 plaster skins on them that were in the shape of like bricks and stone. Oh, yeah. To kind really of make see it all look, the, look real. There's a lot of detail on that from stuff that almost looked like whitewashing to where it's scuffed away to There's even algae moss on it. Yeah. And algae yeah. and things like that that are growing on it. And then um, the decks were framed with lumber and heavy plywood. And they had a metal lath and concrete base over so that people could stand on them. Huh. It was safe for the yeah. actors to stand on them. And a, a stamping method that's used with um, concrete or, you know, like driveways or walkways and stuff was actually used on the fort because there was a lot of area to cover. So this was the easiest way to make the bricks and the stone is oh, use a stamping yeah. method. So that's a little information on cool. Fort Charles. Yeah, so the... The whole military ceremony that's happening in the fort. And so we don't see Norrington yet, but 
we do see some things to get us started. And there's a crowd in attendance and ladies are using fans. And it's definitely a little hot. The average highs in Jamaica are typically in the upper 80s to low 90s. And the lows dip to a chilling mid-upper 70s. (laughs) So you really do need that Gore-Tex jacket to survive that in the winter. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it just basically tells me, again, we come back to... Why do we have all these layers? And the, all these layers are a bad idea in the Caribbean. Yeah. Especially that they're fanning themselves. They're just dying out oh, there yeah. in the heat for yeah. sure. And the music. And then there's some music. You have everybody doing the military drills and all that kind of good stuff that's starting off. But you have music that's playing. And it's an intro, instrumental version of the Rule Britannia. And so it's a British patriotic song originating from the poem Rule Britannia by James Thompson and set to music by Thomas Arne in 1740. So it really does fit right around this time period that we're talking about here. And this would have been a new song for them. So it's probably why it's all the rage here. It's like the latest from from London. And so they're playing it for Norrington. So he must feel very proud about that. Yeah. This song actually became strongly associated with the Royal Navy and was also used with the British Army, for sure. Oh. So I was thinking, you know, after my beatnik starting of the poem by Mike Myers in So I Married an Axe Murderer the other day, I was thinking that everybody would really like to hear me sing all six stanzas of this song, Acapella. Please do. Yeah, just kidding. (laughs) We're not going to go that far. Uh, And plus, we don't want to scare off new listeners as we're trying to build that audience. We definitely don't want that happen. And I don't need that clip floating out in the world for sure. So that's all I have. I just really see that there's this big transition. We're, we're moving again. We have our pirate now. We're moving into Captain Norrington. And so, and Elizabeth is there. So we're really in Will. We have Will. And so now we're really starting to see all these characters come together. And I think that's going to be a pretty, pretty exciting in the next few minutes as we see what happens there. But I can't wait to see Norrington. As I mentioned, he may or may not have a gray wig, as I already tried to foreshadow before. So that's all, that's all I really care about. I got to see what color wig he has. Gray or white or black? He, his original was black. Well, so did, would he, would black. he, it was, it was bla- on, the, on the Dauntless, it was black. Okay. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see yeah, what color so we'll he to went see to. How far? I mean, now that he's going to be Commodore, you got to have you got to go white or gray, if not really gold. <laughs> gold, that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I have actually for this minute. So I just wanted to mention before we get off here that um, you see Elizabeth standing standing there, and she's fanning herself, and she's kind of looking around and just kind of fanning herself. I don't know if it's absolute boredom of being at the ceremony it's not too fun or if she's really that hot and uncomfortable because of that corset i think it's a combination of everything because it wasn't just her if you look at all the ladies there they're all uncomfortable so i think you have so if we look back at her how she dressed she has a slip on Mm -hmm. and then the corset goes over the slip and then they have this heavy material dress and that thing is not a light sundress by any stretch of the imagination if you watch her pull it out of the box it seems pretty weighted yeah so it's it's like you're strapping on polar bear fur to go hang out in the (laughs) caribbean and so i don't think so i think that with the heat and then the fact that she can't breathe and it's just 
it's all of a sudden it's like once you start down that road of I'm getting a little warmer uncomfortable and then that's it because that's all you're focused on so she can't fan herself fast enough and none of those ladies can and I right. assume that all those ladies are probably wearing the similar giddy up and there's no difference so that's why they they're all doing that and the men are a little bit more comfortable and they're probably looking around because I even see one guy kind of look at you know Elizabeth and one of the ladies and he's thinking why are they acting so hot I don't understand it's not too bad out here right now but you think they could have put up a pop-up tent or something to help shade them during the ceremony but no they didn't like an easy up they do the pan of the whole procession down there you see one group of civilians and they have fans or they have umbrellas or Parasols. um, parasols and the other group that Elizabeth's in there's no parasols over there at all they're just out yeah, in the I don't sun. know what the, what the deal is with that. You think that just having some shade would be okay no yeah. matter what you are. But yeah, so there, I think that there's some definite uncomfortableness. And so I think all of those things are playing into each other. A, it's just boring for her. She didn't want to go anyways. Yeah. We, we know that. She knows also that her father's trying to set her up with this guy. So she doesn't want to see what's coming. And... She likes Will. We've already established yes. in the previous minutes. <laughs> she doesn't want to deal with it. Now she's uncomfortable, she's hot, and then she has to play the role of high society and be there. And then she'll probably have to talk to Norrington. And, you know, so she's just dreading this whole thing. At least it's just making her uncomfortable when she could be somewhere else with the pirate medallion sailing the seas and hanging out with Will. That's what I see. (laughs) So that's it. We'll be back tomorrow with Minute 12 of The Curse of the Black Pearl. And Friday's featured segment, Really Bad Eggs, in which we highlight our two favorite lines from this week's minutes on the Pirate of the Caribbean Minute. Until then, let's keep the horn swoggling to a minimum. Ahoy there, matey! Thanks for joining us on Pirates of the Caribbean Minute. You can contact us at podcast at blackpearlminute.com. We just might feature your questions and comments on future episodes. And visit us online at blackpearlminute.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter for additional content and post-episode discussions.